a lot of it is just mindset, right? Mm. I've always been a guy that said, hey, I'm going to jump off the cliff. And sometimes I'm going to land on my head, but somehow, some way, I'm going to land on my head and bounce back up and land on my feet. Sure. And, I, and I've just always had that mentality, right? Every time you're in a position of failure, that position that it turns into an opportunity. That's been my mindset my entire life. And I don't know where it came from. Could be parenting, could be just surrounding yourself with better, smarter people. That's something I've always tried to do. But I always just knew that I was going to be okay in the end. Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, Tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. On today's show, we're joined by Mike Flaherty of L5 Investments. Mike has been involved in over $3 billion worth of transactions over his career and been through the 2008-2009 great financial crisis. And we talk about that. We talk about multifamily investments. We talk about the three Ps. So make sure to check the three Ps out and how to think about investing going into 2023. Mike's a great guy. He's out in North, Northern California and invests in Kansas City, believe it or not, and other southeastern states. So uh, really excited for you guys to listen to today's episode. Lots of golden nuggets about growing, starting, and maintaining a commercial real estate firm, specifically in the multifamily sector. Welcome back to another episode of the Invest for the Win podcast. Got a special guest today, Michael Flaherty of L5 Investments. Today, we're talking about starting building and growing a successful multifamily real estate business. Now, Mike is the founder and president of L5 Investments, which provides its partners with short-term cash flow returns and long-term appreciation via the ownership, repositioning, and management of apartment communities in the United States markets of growth and stability, and Kansas City being one of those. So excited to talk about that today, Mike. Mike's bought and sold over $1 billion of multifamily properties since 2009. That's a lot. Totally over 7,000 Units focuses on well-located, yield-driven assets with value-add potential, with both physical and operational repositioning opportunities. Current portfolio, and maybe you have to update this because we have had to reschedule a couple times, Mike. But is 7,600 units across seven states, 13 cities, and valued at a billion dollars. So that is a a mark that we sit down every year and talk about in our annual planning EOS Vision and Traction Organizer. Uh, meetings with our executive team that we would like to reach. So super stoked to have somebody on the show today that has reached that and is continuing to grow. Mike actively participates in all acquisition and management of L5 assets. Okay, I could continue to go on and mention the fact that you've been involved in over 200 properties nationwide and you know valued over $3 billion, but I'm going to let the man just get to it on how he got started in this industry and what that journey was. I always kind of like to take it back to that point in time where it was either somebody or something happened and you said, you know what, that's that's the industry I'm going to be in. And a lot of times some really crazy fun stories come out of there. So Mike, thanks for joining the show and, and take it away, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Logan. And uh, congrats on your success. I've been impressed talking a couple of times and 
uh, learning about your background and your company and your progression here as well. And uh, thanks for having me today. Yeah, our pleasure. Uh, yeah, going going back, yeah, how did I get into this? Obviously, it, you know, you take a lot of rights and your lefts and ups and downs, and uh, you know, and that's been part of my story is is, is you know, doing well and, and and doing bad and making some good decisions, bad decisions, and yeah. eventually you you, you kind of land on your on your feet and figure it out. But I, I'm a guy that had always wanted to be in real estate. Um, you know, my grandfather was a carpenter and a builder. Um, I always wanted to get my hands dirty, uh, always had kind of an engineering detail oriented due diligence mindset. Um, I thought my father came from the, uh, you know, accounting banking background. And, sure. you know, I, I remember, you know, going to, you know, basketball tournaments early in the morning and I, you know, I, I tell him to pull over and we look at this land and I, I try to tell him what I thought we could do there. And we talk about it and he probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that was in high school and it just was something I always had an interest. I don't want to say an eye for, but I always had interest in. Yeah. Um, I went to Villanova university of Philadelphia. I got an engineering degree and kind of put, you know, started to put me on track there. You know, I, I never liked uh, physics and soils engineering and, and all that, but I did really enjoy the, you know, uh, the site planning, architectural aspect of that. Mm -hmm. And by the time I graduated, I realized I didn't really want to be an engineer, but I wanted to be involved with real estate in some way. Yeah. And my first job out of college was with a, a fantastic engineering firm out of Philadelphia. And at, at a really young age, I was managing development work and, and uh, I call it entitlements, but yeah. city approvals to secure uh, planning commission approvals. And I was you know, presenting to city councils to get a residential development approved here or McDonald's approved here or Walgreens, you know, over there. And I just really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and then we, once you learn what you enjoy and what you think you're good at, it still takes a while to learn, you know, where you want to be in that, in that space. Is it sure. residential? Is it commercial? Is it industrial? Is it apartments? Is it single family home development? And then I hopped over and worked for a big national, actually, I believe they're the largest uh, semi-custom luxury home builder, Toll Brothers out of Philadelphia and I did a couple years with them and I learned, Hey, this was fantastic experience, but I also learned, Hey, this, this isn't what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I went back into commercial thought I wanted to do commercial work for a large uh, international conglomerate called Bovis Lend Lease out of New York city. Okay. Um, and I managed uh, a ton of projects for uh, BP British petroleum on the East coast the, the and it's some projects internationally then they took me to los angeles and all the while i was learning hey i, I really wanted to be a developer on my own mm. uh went back to university of southern california got my mba there i kind of wanted to combine my engineering you know background with a finance background because i figured out i knew how to do this i just didn't know how to make money at it sure sure um and, you know, uh, return on investment and IRR and how do I raise capital? And I thought my mm -hmm. MBA would, would help me with that. But more than anything, it helped me network with some really successful real estate 
uh, investors out of Southern California. Yeah, they really convinced me. Hey, you're Mike. You're ready. You know, go 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 out and do this. You have the skill set. You have the education. You have the background. It's time to jump. And I partnered with some investment bankers out of New York and LA. And then 2008 hit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it didn't matter how good you were at what you did, but if it if it had real estate associated with it, it was a tough couple years. Sure. Once you know Lehman fell, what the September 17th of 2008. I remember it vividly because I had a project. It was supposed to start construction a couple of weeks later. That never happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really painful, to be honest with you. It was an ugly yeah. time. And it, 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 I look back at it as arguably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, I pretty much financially lost just about everything. Yeah. But it put me in a great entrepreneurial spot to say, okay, you know, as Warren Buffett says, buy when there's blood in the streets. Sure. And there was a lot of blood at that time. Yeah. So it put me in in kind of a, a contrarian, you know, opportunistic mindset to say, okay, what do I want to do now? Right. I had done a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And I started studying different asset classes. And, you know, eventually I learned a little bit more about multifamily and apartments. I had owned some small apartments in the past when I had a corporate job, some single family homes and some small apartments. I probably had 12 to 15 small properties that I managed across the country and they were a lot of work. And, you know, what I learned is people really need to need a smart, safe place to live in good times and in bad. And, you know, 2009 was, was a really tough time, mm-hmm. but the reality of it is multifamily, you know, you know, in comparison to other classes of real estate did fantastic. I think the sure. foreclosure rate of multifamily was at a time when everyone thought every anything that had to do with real estate was going back to the bank. Right. It wasn't apartments. So I started buying apartments then. And we were buying apartments from, it was not what's called, it was not considered a distressed asset class. Occupancy, you know, maintained 90% plus, but you were able to buy some great deals from distressed sellers. Uh, that maybe had pain somewhere else. They bought too many condos in <laughs> Southern California or Southern Florida. They got too entrenched in development or speculative land plays. And they had to sell what arguably had been their cash cows that their families or companies had owned for many years. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were there to start to buy them starting in 2009. And that's really how I got into it, Logan. Uh, yeah. Long story short you know, on, on how I landed in apartments, but started buying apartments with my partner in 2009 and, and really have grown it, grown it from there. Yeah, to an incredible uh, portfolio, I might add. And so one question, I, I'm very um, emotionally uh, intelligent, and I'm not saying that to, to pat my back, but the questions I ask uh, our guests are less on the engineering mechanic side, uh, because I have partners that think like that. I'm much on much more on the communication and, and the emotional component of that. But back in 2009, you said you lost a lot of your personal, you know, wealth in that period of time, just like I think a lot of people had. But do you remember maybe one or two things that allowed you to have the confidence to to kind of step back in to the market and continue to do that? I, I know you mentioned Buffett's, 
quote, obviously, you know, blood by when, when blood is in the streets, but that's easier said than done when you just went through a very painful experience. So very curious on how you, you know, kind of had the confidence and, or just wherewithal to just continue to, to put one foot in front of the other, because I think a lot of people right now feel um, like, like if they're trying to get started or um, anything in life it, to that change or making that jump is really difficult. You were in the industry, you had the knowledge and experience, but just went through a very painful kind of uh, opportunity that you then you know, executed on and now, now look where you're at, but just curious if you remember back then and how you continued to, to put one step in front of the other. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think uh, I'm sitting there trying to figure out how to answer it. Obviously yeah. the number of different variables that play into it. A, a lot of it is just mindset, right? Mm. I, I've always been a guy that said, Hey, I'm going to jump off the cliff and, and sometimes I'm going to land on my head, but somehow some way I'm going to land on my head and bounce back up and land on my feet. Sure. And, I, and I've just always had that mentality, right? Every, every time you're in a position of failure, you know, that that position that it turns into an opportunity, and that's been my mindset my entire life. And I don't know where it came from. Uh, you know, could be parenting, could be just surrounding yourself with you know better, smarter people. That's something I've always tried to do, but I always just knew that I was going to be okay in the end. Yeah. And as an ex athlete like you, you know, I was a, I was a driver. Right. So I just, you know, part of my weakness is I never thought I would fail. Sure. And, and, uh, and, and you know, when it happened to me, it was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was going to, you know, this was ever going to happen, but I, I didn't really think overthink it. I just kind of plowed through it and just had belief in myself and the people around me. Um, you know, I was blessed to find some really good interns, really smart interns in the industry that I could bring in and help me get get it started, you know, fast and furious. Yeah, very, very good. I think that what I'm hearing is the surroundings that you put yourself around. You know, I talk a lot about the, you know, being around the five people that you're spending the yeah. most time with and them rubbing off on you. Somebody said one time, if you're hanging out with four millionaires, you're probably going to be the fifth. But if you're hanging out with four drug addicts, you're probably going to be the fifth as well. You know, so just think about where you're spending your time and who you're surrounding that with. Now, it still takes a lot of action and confidence to be able to move forward and, you know, the right thesis. And that's kind of what I want to transition into is, you know, when you were stepping back in in 2009, you had, you know, I mean, you had a lot of opportunities, I'm sure. But when you think about geographic You've touched on the asset classes, but when you think about the geographic locations that you're, you know, invested in, I know you're living in California now, but you were in the Northeast as well with in Philadelphia. Yep. Um, you know, how did you come up with where you thought you wanted to be investing in and um, the cities or the markets that you picked? I've always followed job growth. Mm. Um that is, you know, and some of it came from when you studied markets in 2009, right? You know, in, in time in, in times of economic strength, everyone thinks they can make money anywhere. Sure. Um, but every market has sub-markets of you know path of progress and not path of progress, you know, yeah. A, B, C, D markets. And you need to understand that. You know, you can go to the top growth, rent growth market, apartment market in the country, and you're gonna find a bad area to invest. But 
my focus has always been investing in when in areas of job growth. So we study that across the country. So when I started buying in 2009, 2010, I remember it vividly because I was teaching it as well. Either the four of the five top job growth markets were in Texas, mm-hmm. Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, Austin. If you were a 20 something graduating from college coming out of the, you know, the great recession, uh, you were looking for jobs in Texas. So mm-hmm. my sole focus was finding jobs in Texas. And that's still our focus. It's investing in, um, you know, net population areas coming out of COVID, following job growth, job announcements, trying to understand projected rent growth going forward in the next five years. And as a result, those markets are, you know, in the Southeast, what they call the, you know, most economists call the smile of the United States from Virginia down through Florida, over to Texas, into Phoenix, and up into the Pacific Northwest. And, and obviously, as you've known, we've done really well in, the, in, in some really strong markets in the Midwest as well. Yeah, yeah it makes a lot, of, a lot of sense. I mean, the demand drivers of population growth and job growth. I mean, I, and I, I've always said this as well. Um, you know, if somebody asks me to evaluate a deal in Texas, I can do a high-level under and get a high level understanding, but I don't know what the operational expenses are. I don't have relationships in regards to vendors or people that can solve problems for me. I don't have property management companies that I can just call and 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 so I'm set up, you know, in the Midwest that way. And that's kind of our competitive advantage up to this point. You know, I think too is is like a, a younger firm. You have to you have to kind of plant your seed and then you know you can grow around it. And the same demand drivers that are in Des Moines, Iowa or Lincoln, Nebraska or Omaha are similar. They mimic Kansas City, but they don't mimic Phoenix, Arizona. You know, they don't mimic right. Dallas, you know, Fort Worth area. And so I think just making sure that you know, as an investor, you understand what your thesis is and then kind of use what Gabrielle Odingen, I forget what her book is called, but the whoop process, you know, you got to rub that up against reality and say, what can you actually execute on? And that's one thing that we have had to make sure that we have stayed true to is, you know, buying at a good basis, putting some longer term debt on things and things that we can operationally manage, you know, with the scope that we have right now. So it just takes, I think, realistic expectations and understanding what your capacity is, because if you're raising capital from investors, they're going to expect that you have thought through those questions and you have not just one plan, but a two or three contingency plans based on that as well. And so as you've grown your company across, I think, seven states now, seven markets um, in your portfolio, in 7,000 units, you know, talk to us about, you know, the things that you need to grow a business. You know, you brought a lot of the, you know, experience in regards to from the engineering side and things like that, but that's one component. Then you went back to USC and got the MBA to understand the finance and stuff. That's great. That's complete at a theoretical level, but it's hard to be effective at an applied level, meaning you still have to go find investors. You still have to have a balance sheet. You still have to be able to manage people effectively. So thinking through the the trajectory of your growth of your company, how have you, how have you maybe siloed those different buckets in your 
your business and focused on each one of them because as we're continuing to grow, you know, we have um, you know different skill sets as partners here, and that's great. Um, but making sure we understand everybody on the right in the right seat, and um, I, I'll have a follow up question. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, you said you said a lot there. So with those silos, you know, with me personally, especially when you start a business, you need to be the captain of all of those silos, right? Yeah. You need to understand each silo in in its the, you know the deepest of depth, and that ties to your investors, right? Your investors, you know, are going to follow you into the fight, and they need to know that you know why you're there to begin with. So, you know, you, you talked about really understanding the market you're in and understanding it deeply. That's a big part of it, right? Yeah. To your point, whether you're located in Kansas City or not, you know, and I tell my team this all the time, why, you know, number one, why Missouri? Why Kansas? You know, economically, growth standpoint, tax standpoint, and then why Kansas City, Right. And then why, you know, one submarket versus another, you know, it, 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 one, you have to understand that first to, to make a smart, prudent, safe investment. Sure. Number two, your investors deserve that as well. Mm. So the ability to, to share that knowledge with your investors, with your database is really powerful because they want to invest in individuals and companies that know what they're doing and have built a foundation in any given market, whether you're located there or not, you know, why, why are you in this market? Why do you like the sub market? Why do you like this specific deal? What's the story? What's the value play? How did you find it? Who's going to manage it? What's, what's their foundation, right? right. Like we use three or four different management management companies across the country and I'm in Northern California and, and my investors will follow me into a number of these markets. But in the beginning, it's like, Hey, what do you know about, Kansas City. Mm. Uh, have you been there? Uh, who's going to manage the property? And normally our management companies will manage anywhere from five to 10,000 units in any given market. So when we find an opportunity, you know, before we, you know, sniff it up and down and understand, you know, how deeply we want to go after this property, we're going to pick up the phone and call, you know, our, our re local regional manager that probably already manages, you know, three to five of our properties and say, hey, what do you know about this asset? What do you know about this location? Yeah. And arguably they've managed there before. A lot of times they know someone on their team that used to manage the property. I'm, I'm shocked how often they go, hey, hold on a second. Let me get Susie on the line. You know, she used to manage the Oaks of Overland Park. Um, but it's really about building a team that has the right background and in investing in a market you deeply understand with uh, a partner that has a strong management foundation there. Yeah, that's a great answer. And I just want, you know, especially passive investors to hear that answer because everything that you just described is years of work. You know, you can't just pick up the phone in this week and say, I'm going to build, you know, a relationship with three to five different property management companies that I think are going to be uh, good fits for us. You know, you got to go meet them. You've got to have actual business meetings with them. You've got to travel if you're not in those markets. And then you have to make a decision. And that decision yeah. needs to have criteria that you've decided they fit or, or they don't. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's just there's so much that goes into to the, the back end of these deals. And I think that 
you know, just being a newcomer in the space, you know, been in it for seven years now, just be just watching kind of other people grow their businesses. You know, it was a really good period of time to buy multifamily if you did it right and hold on to it. And then you could sell right back into an incredible market. This is going to be our segue into our predictions because, you know, this is something that I spent a lot of time with and, and trying to understand myself. Um, and I can read the books and I read the headlines and, and all the articles and, and, but, but where I get most of my actual, you know, effective data is from anecdotal conversations that I have with other people that are making decisions out there in the marketplace. You know, the reports that CoStar and Yardi and ULI, ULI and all the folks put out are great, but they're really work, you know, working to look through the, 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 the rear view mirror, not necessarily the windshield. And the only way I know how to look through the windshield is by talking to people that are out there transacting. And so, you know, 2008 was 15 years ago. Okay. And so the last, I mean, from, I guess, probably 12 or 13, maybe 14 and beyond pretty good time to be getting into multifamily. Um, if you did it right, you know, whatever, there's a lot of different pieces of that puzzle, but as people are thinking about investing now in today's, you know, economic landscape, let's just call that where inflation is higher than it has been and interest rates are higher than they have been in the recent past, is that influencing your acquisition strategy? And how are you thinking about continuing to grow um, you know, your, your portfolio uh, during the next five, 10 years, right, is, is my question. That's a big question. Uh, with a lot, a lot of juicy nuggets, uh, <laughs> and a lot of ways to answer that. Um, I think first off, you know, apartments are the number one risk-adjusted, inflation-adjusted real estate asset class. So, you know, we're invested. I'm invested here for a reason because I saw what fell apart coming out of 2008, 2009. Right. Right. Um, uh, you know, we've been through a global pandemic, right? Right. It feels like yesterday when, you know, April 1st of 2020, gosh, Logan, I didn't think anyone was going to pay their rent. Right. And, yeah. You know, and, and what happened during that time period, uh, you know, our occupancies went up from 95 to 97%. And, and did we have a lot of people not paying their rent? We did. But in the scheme of a business model and businesses that fail, when you look at what happened to the industry from a, a collection standpoint and what happened to my portfolio from a collection standpoint went from like 99% in collections down to 97. Yeah. And believe me, I was not happy about it. You know, our team has spent a ton of time working on it and we're still trying to deal with evictions and sure. collection issues, et cetera. But big picture, we fared extremely well. Uh, and extremely well compared to other businesses and other asset classes. So, you know, you take a lot from that and you look forward and go, hey, is this still the space we want to be in from an investing standpoint? And the answer is absolutely, right? We go through an inflation period over the last, you know, couple of years. And, you know, what's happened to us, you know, while a lot of people have, have struggled and a lot of businesses have struggled is, you know, our, our renewals, right? When a tenant stays and signs, you know, decides to stay on another year, our renewal increases went from, you know, went up to eight to 10%. Mm. Uh, our new lease growth, when we sign a new lease and bring in a new tenant, 
averaged anywhere from 18 upwards to 30 percent right what tip that what's typical in the industry is three <laughs> percent so as i mentioned before apartments do fantastic in a period of inflation now is that expected to decrease absolutely and we're already seeing that right logan you're seeing sure. it it's all over the news you know decelerating rent growth we're in the midst of that now that's not necessarily a bad thing you know what that's saying is you can't charge 30 percent rent increases anymore it's coming down and right now we're seeing it in back to the norm you know three to seven yeah. percent rent increases across the board um you know it's sometimes it sounds like the sky is falling but it's not it's getting back to what we think is is the norm and, and then the, and then the biggest thing that i think protects apartment investors and apartment owners is just the demand for rentals and th that demand is there and most of the economists you're going to listen to or read about is going to tell you that we're in a national housing shortage that's mm -hmm. expected to continue for another 12 years and i don't know how the country as a whole keeps up with that um you know i read something the other day that regulatory costs were up 40 percent over the last three years it's very, very challenging to build anything right now. Yeah. It's very, very challenging to build more apartments, whether it's workforce housing, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's, you know, class A expensive new construction. I don't foresee that changing anytime soon, irregardless of, you know, labor issues and material cost issues, which, which are starting to come, come down a bit. Secondary, secondarily, we see interest rates that have arguably doubled right now, right? Right. Chairman, the Chairman Powell and the Fed have already committed to continue to to, to you know to raise rates. So we'll we'll see more rate hikes into the into the future, and when that will slow and stop, you know, who knows, right? Sure. You know, I would expect it to slow and stop over the next you know quarter to to three quarters here next year. Um, but buying a home is now extremely challenging right if if you're a new homeowner uh your your potential mortgage just doubled between august and, and today with where rates are so those new homeowners are are not buying homes right now they're 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 rent, renters at the moment yeah so i think big picture you know there's a reason why apartments are so risk adverse it's if you can buy you know a well located property if you can finance it well to your point earlier uh, and, and have good access to jobs and a very diverse job center. I'm a big, big fan of buying uh, adjacent or nearby good retail. You know, it doesn't have to be a Whole Foods, but a good national grocer, sure. uh, Starbucks, um, you know, it, all of those factors you know, present for a very smart, safe investment long term. And I think I think we're going to see, see for at least a decade plus more demand than supply in our space. Yeah. Well, I think the the demand from and the supply and demand still makes a lot of sense. I think when I look at Green Street's property price index from the last three years, pre-COVID, the indice was, I don't know, around 124 or so, I think, uh, sorry, 134. And then, you know, it dropped all the way down to 122. And then we had the big influx of of capital into the markets and then also cheap debt went all the way up to 165. We have gotten back down to pre-COVID levels. I think we're at 135. This encompasses multifamily, industrial office, and retail, um, not just multifamily. So just keep that in mind. 
But what's different is, like you mentioned, you know, debt was, uh, you were able to get debt at three and a half or 4%. Now it's six and a half or 7%. And what I'm seeing is it's just creating a dislocation from where sellers are currently. And we are starting to see uh, closer to asking price um, from our bids. Um, but it's still going to take time. And so that's going to drop transaction volume. And I think what's interesting right now is two, it's twofold, still a little bit of price discovery out there in the markets, but from a real estate, a, a passive investor standpoint, you know, I wonder, and I, I'd like to get your feedback on this, but I wonder if the typical 15% IRR, 8% cash on cash deals, uh, if that doesn't drop, and if that's okay, and that's also going to be a discovery period of time for passive investors over the next, I don't know, five years or so. Just something I've been thinking quite a bit about. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think just time-wise, it's a fantastic time to be very picky, patient, and prudent when it comes yeah. to new investments. I like and, that. You know, yeah. that's, that's 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 something I try to stay tried and true to for you know a decade plus, but especially now. Uh, as you said, it, it's pricing exploration period. Uh, interest rates have doubled. Uh, sellers are not realistic in pricing. So I think we have to be patient for that to come really in line, back in line with where pricing should be based off of where interest rates are as of now or where interest rates are going, which means, you know, cap rates have risen, you know, for, for those of your listeners that understand that. Uh, they need to rise in line in line with where there's demand and where there's demand based off of today's interest rates. Yeah. So that's coming. And then also as a result, there's just not a lot of deals on the market right now. Right. Right. A yeah. lot of sellers have said, hey, yeah, you know, in August, my value was 30 million. Now it's might be 22 million. I don't need to sell. I'm enjoying, you know, a great property, a great cash. So I'm just going to hold on to it. So that you know, those are some of the challenges that we're seeing in the space right now. Uh, and then interest rates, you know, in, in, in with multifamily have kind of leveled off plus or minus five and a half percent for fixed rate. Um, that sounds horrible to a lot of younger buyers compared to where rates have been. But long term, that's pretty normal. Yeah. Um, you know, we started buying 2009, 2010. The, you know, that's exactly where our interest rates were. So sure. there's part of me that likes to think, hey, we're coming back to the norm. Some of the aggressive buyers at the you know, the back end of the last cycle have slowed down or, or gone away or come back to their day jobs. And, and you've got, you know, more patient money that's waiting in the wings to start buying here again. Yeah. Some um, similarities or differences that I'm thinking about from 2008 to now is one, what, what, what's the, what's the consumer like and um, you know, how healthy is the consumer, but how healthy are banks as well? And, you know, frankly, all the reports that I read say there is no similarities between 2008 and 2023 in regards to those two facets, which are, you know, big components of investing in multifamily real estate. So, you know, I wonder, yes, maybe we go into a, a recession, how prolonged it will be because of those factors. I mean, unemployment, where, where we're at and the labor participation rate, where it's at is going to be, you know, 
I mean, there's there's jobs available for people to to get, and um, banks have been more prudent in their lending. Where I think the fragmented opportunities will be for guys like yourself and L5 and and FTW is really those deals that were done the last three years that may be trying to implement some business plan that had aggressive assumptions with floating rate debt, and that will create opportunities. I looked. We looked at and underwrote. 3,000 plus opportunities last year, and we bought five. And so I hope that hit rate is better this year. I'm not sure what it's going to be like, but from our evidence, we are getting closer now to where the whisper prices are on assets. And so I think what I'm hearing from you is picky, prudent, and patient. And I love the three Ps there. I, I can always remember a good a good acronym and, or um, I don't know what that's called, but the three P's, I I love that. I think it's a perfect time to do that. And mind you, that was 3000 deals bought five over three different asset classes. So we do industrial retail shopping centers and multifamily. So it was a very slim pickings um, last year, but I do believe and agree that being picky, prudent and patient right now is is a really good uh, idea to, to kind of be focused on. One of my mentors once said, Logan, real estate deals are like the bus. There's a new one every 30 minutes. So just be patient. And uh, I think I'm hearing that from another very experienced investor in the market. And so I appreciate that insight and perspective. I love that. I love actually that ratio excites me, right? Because every broker can sell you on a deal that's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you don't really know you're a good investor until you've looked at a lot of deals. Yeah. So that ratio, and we're in the volume business, right? You know, if you're if you're if you're only looking at a few deals and you're closing on all those deals, you're you're what's considered a retail investor. Sure. So that's a great, I think it's a great ratio. The more deals you look at, the closer you are to finding the deal that works. I normally say you got to look at a hundred deals to close one, right? You look yeah. at a hundred, you, you actually underwrite and do due diligence, light due diligence on 50. You, you dig in on 30, maybe you write 20 offers. Maybe you go best and final on five to get one. Yep. Um, but I think that's a very smart way to be looking at it, Logan. Yeah. And I think too, on that, Front, Mike. I mean, you know, if you stop, if you're an investor out there that is growing your business, similar to both of, of us here on the show today, if you stop because you're upset or you're, you know, you get beaten down because you're not winning any deals, to get what you've got spun up, respun up is going to take time. And those relationships with the brokers and the sellers that you have right now need to be compounded. Even if your hit rate is, is, is remarkably low. If you get, try to stop and get respun back up and and get the acquisitions going, you're going to be behind the eight ball a little bit. And so our philosophy has just said, stay on the game, stay in the game, keep, keep putting out offers, keep looking at as many as we can and building as many relationships, because I do think in any market uh, there's opportunities. I mean, I wasn't purchasing multifamily or, retail or industrial seven years ago, but I was acting as a vendor in the space. And I remember exactly where interest rates were and cap rates and thinking that once they got to a certain point, I was like, wow, you know, we're never going to get any deals done ever. And we were talking about seven caps then. And now it was last year, we're talking about three and a half caps in the same market. So um, it's all perspective. And, you know, I always love Ray Dalio's 
you know, first line of his book and principles, I've got it here on the desk is, you know, I've learned more about what I don't know than what I do know. And it worries me most about what I don't know. And so um, I think that's, you know, extremely important to keep in mind is, you know, you have to keep, you know, at this game and it is a volume game. And, and that's why I think sponsors like L5 and FTW, I'll throw us in the, in the bucket, provide value because we're staying in the game, still finding those opportunities. And there's a lot of value in those. So Logan, I, I had, I had that book in my hand yesterday. Yeah. So good. Uh, another, another book that I think to your point of you were asking how I found motivation coming out of 2008, and, and you're mentioning to, to your listeners, you know, hey, don't don't get down, right? Stay yeah. active is one of the books that I like to read for motivation has been uh, Napoleon Hill's Thinking Grow Rich. Great book. And and it, it's funny. It's one of my favorites. I've probably bought 100 plus copies <laughs> and sent it to people uh, to help give them a little edge, a little motivation. And I tell the story all the time. I have never read the entire book. Mm-hmm. I, I will read I will get into it and get so motivated that I put it down. I'm highlighting it as I read it. I put it down and I get, I get back, you know, in the swing of things. So that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's, a great it's, another, it's another good one. Well, if you haven't checked out principles app um, by Ray Dalio, it's a free app. And even if you don't want to read the whole book, he sends a, a principle of the day that you can dive into. And if you do that, I'm guessing over 365 days, maybe you have read the whole book. It's a phenomenal book from what I think is one of the most premier thought leaders. And I definitely have spent a lot of time with Napoleon Hill and Think and Grow Rich as well. So two incredible resources there. All right, Mike, just some awesome stuff that we've been able to cover today. But one question I always love to ask and, and understand is people's intrinsic motivation and, and what inspires you and why you do what you do. Because just like we talked about Napoleon Hill, I'm always interested in what fires people up and gets them to operate at a high level and continue to, to work hard on a daily basis. Well, I think business-wise, I'm a deal junkie, right? Mm. Uh, like many of us are in the business. So I love the ins and outs of that. But, you know, the motivation behind it is my family. You know, yeah. I'm a family man first, uh, trying to be involved with the community and then my business thereafter. So, you know, yeah. th- this weekend I was up at 530 with my daughter uh, at a, vol- a competitive volleyball tournament in San Francisco on Saturday and Sunday and just, and just loving it. So yeah, that's, the awesome. end, that's, that's the motivation. That's what we're working hard for. Absolutely. Is the freedom to be there for the most important individuals in your life and well said. investing can definitely do that. All right. Well, where can people find more about L5 and what you do? They want to follow you. They want to be interested in maybe some of your upcoming opportunities, whatever it is, learn more about you and your company. Can you point them in the right direction? Yeah, of course. Check out L5 Invest, L as in Larry, the numeral five invest.com. Um, reach out to me. I'm, you know, I'm available 24 seven. I always say text me in the middle of the night. I'll get back to you tomorrow. I'm very hands-on <laughs> with folks that are interested in what we do and potential investors. And, and my cell phone is 310 310- Nine nine one three zero nine one. I've been in, you know, uh, I've, I've been at the bottom. I've been learning this industry for a long time, and I remember when I knew nothing about it. So, uh, feel free to ask, you know, follow up with me, and and of course, reach out to guys like Logan and myself that have been battling through this, and you know, have found success through the years. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Mike, for your time, for your insights, for the three P's. I'm just the one thing that's I just cannot get out of my head, and that's so cool. Uh, I know our listeners are going to find this valuable. I surely did. So really appreciate you being here today. Sounds great. Thank you, Logan. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.